0: This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting Etnastory.com.
1: Hi, this is Doro. Just a quick reminder before we get to our guest today that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is on Saturday, October 3rd. Due to the pandemic, this year, the conference will be held virtually and all are welcome to join. You'll be inspired by luminaries in health and wellness and take home real strategies to improve your happiness and wellness. You can get all the information you need at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. And now for the show, people are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage
0: people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say, we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Tracy Freeman is an integrative medical physician whose primary focus is achieving wellness through a combination of holistic and conventional medicine mythologies. Dr. Freeman, whose medical career spans almost two decades, has progressively reoriented her practice to include natural treatments and a search for the root cause of disease. Dr. Freeman's interest in treating the whole person goes hand in hand with our mission here at BBNR. And that is why Tracy is our chief medical officer.
1: Welcome to Health Gig, Tracy.
0: Yes, welcome, Tracy. Thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) This isn't your first rodeo with us, but we have lots of new information to talk about today. And we wanted to begin the podcast talking about COVID 19. In addition to all the things we're supposed to do, like wear a mask and continue to social, or we prefer the term physical distance from each other and wash our hands, what can we be doing?
2: So one of the things I think that struck me was there was an NBC health reporter who said he caught a plane, he wore his mask and he still got COVID and he felt like it was from his eyes. So it made me go research that. And of course, coronaviruses traditionally cause pink eye. We know that there are receptors in the eye for sure. And then to look at it, it looks like they tested it specifically in cadavers to see if there are receptors in the eye. And there are. I personally went on Amazon and got the $6 lab goggles, meaning the goggles that you wear to protect you from spills that if there was a splash from a chemical, it wouldn't get in your eyes. So they have like a side visor. They're clear. And actually Trump at a few events, I've seen him wearing them as well. He hasn't worn the mask, but I've seen him with like clear goggle. Maybe he was touring factories or something like that. But I would say if you protect your eyes, you wash your hands and you wear a mask, that's pretty amazing. And then if you avoid crowds indoors, that pretty much ices the cake <laughs> in terms of protection. Then I feel like you've done as much as you can do on your
0: part. That's a good thought to put goggles on. You're right. Because we were even thinking early on, people were saying, if you wear contacts, don't wear them because you're touching your eyes all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so if you could put the goggles over your contacts or I guess over your glasses, maybe, you're just protecting them.
2: They even sell them with magnification because I accidentally bought that. <laughs> oh, so that's was brilliant. Like, yeah, they actually were like readers and goggles. <laughs>
0: Very good. <laughs> (laughs) That's a great idea. And then we talk about boosting our immune system. What are your thoughts about this idea that your immune system is your immune system? Can we really boost our immune system? Absolutely. So the thing is that, you know, the biggest
2: hub of your immune system is your gut. So obviously your diet makes a big impact because that affects your microbiome, that affects leaky gut options, allergies, like you certainly don't want an immune system that's going the wrong direction. And when you have a lot of food sensitivities, you have an immune system that's treating normal as abnormal. All of that allows your immune system to be available and ready to fight when needed. And I I think that if your immune system is on point. You honestly don't have to do much else. The problem is that life happens and so stress will lower your immune system. We know that for sure. A bad diet will lower your immune system and inadvertently by the way. It doesn't first of all give you any nutrition to support your cells, but also impacts your gut negatively. So I personally think that if you can maintain your immune system and everything else is secondary, and I always use the example of the prostitutes in South Africa, You know, they had been exposed to HIV so many times that they actually developed resistance and they're studying them. That means their immune system rose to the occasion that despite having, you know, I'm sure sex with plenty of people based on their rates that were HIV positive, they never got infected. And that states that the body can rise to the occasion, even in something so dramatic as that.
0: So what you're saying
2: is give your body a chance right you need to help it out probably sugar is one of our downfalls which is a lot during covid right <laughs> i think by and large everyone's been trapped inside and it's like being haunted by your kitchen you have to learn to make
1: good choices sugar's been my friend and me friend,
0: yeah. right. <laughs> It's my friend and my enemy. Oh, right. Mine as well. And just thinking about all of the alternatives, monk fruit has become one of my favorite substitutes these days for sugar.
2: I think it's, but, that's one of my favorites too. And the flavored stevias, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And adding those in. I mean, you know, when I'm being like conscious of that. Right. Know? Right. Exactly. It. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about who's more at risk for COVID? Were there any surprises that you've seen or heard? I think when we began, we thought children were safe. Initially, it looked like
2: it was more going for men than women and adults more than children. Now there's a subset of children that are impacted. And in fact, we've had some deaths. It stands to reason that the elderly or those with chronic illnesses would be more vulnerable because that's true of most things. But I think the children being impacted is also just a hard pill to swallow, that you would watch them go down in that way. And, that, and then the manifestations of it are different, that it's more
0: vascular
2: as opposed to upper respiratory tract illnesses.
0: So I think that we're still learning is the truth. Yeah, that is really scary for a lot of people. And why why are people of color at risk? Why are we hearing so much more about people of color that seem to get COVID in unproportionate amounts?
2: Number one, there's a higher propensity or proportion of chronic health conditions like hypertension and diabetes, which are risk factors for COVID. And then also they are often essential workers, your bus drivers, the people working at the grocery store, a kind of front line in many ways. So their exposure is up. And in urban environments, the living conditions are too crowded um, as opposed to the suburban environment where you live a little bit more spread out. And then I think the undue stress, right? So that's certainly going to play a part. No one, you can't quantify that. Even though we can correlate it, quantifying stress is very hard. So certainly the stress of, you know, the unproportionate amount of poverty and the racial tensions at the moment can't be healthy.
0: Hey, what about the role of vitamin D3? So
2: vitamin D3 comes from the sun, basically, um, and then it mixes with your skin and goes through your liver, kidneys, and finally it's your cells. It all works out. The problem is that melanin was kind of ancestrally developed because of so much sun exposure. You got enough vitamin D easily just because of the nature of being from Africa. However, when you move to these climates, these more northern climates, it's harder for you to get your vitamin D... Levels. You just, if a Caucasian spends 10 minutes in the sun, it's thought that they spend 10 minutes with their face and arms exposed, they get a nice daily dose of vitamin D. And that's at a decent high, you know, high noon or something like that sun. African American would have to spend 30 minutes for the equivalent. So as you just have to kind of get past the melanin, which is there for a good reason, but it blocks the vitamin D.
0: And we're seeing a lot of people with COVID that had extremely low vitamin D, right? Correct. Which then correlates with inflammation and all other kinds of sicknesses that you right. just talked about.
2: Right. And to be honest with you, if I test people, unless they're taking it, they're low. Or they? maybe they got back from a Caribbean trip or something like that, where they got a lot of sun. By and large, everyone's low unless they're proactive.
0: What levels do you like to see people at for their vitamin D3? I like between 50 and 100. Mm -hmm. Uh, The
2: LabCorp or Quest, their normals are 30 and above, but I think optimal. There's a difference between normal and optimal. I think optimal is greater than 50.
1: Have you seen a lot of patients
2: who've had COVID? No, actually. And even the patients that I thought were COVID, when I tested their antibodies, they were negative. (laughs) I've only had one antibody positive patient so far out of probably 40 to 50 would be my estimate, I would say, which is shocking. Even the one that I was like, you didn't have COVID. (laughs) But I honestly am waiting for the chips to fall on the testing because we kind of rushed here a little bit. And perhaps in the end, we may find that we don't have the tests we thought we had Mm. the numbers pour in.
0: That makes sense. You know, the next question that we were going to ask about was mental health. and All of the stress, as you talked about earlier, you know, it's really impacted us in a lot of ways. And can you talk about stress? I know we have at our conferences in the past, but how do you see stress playing a role in helping us become healthier and how do we reduce stress?
2: So I think COVID has been an extrovert's nightmare. So if you are an introvert, someone telling you to stay at home, is like, okay, thank you very much. You know, I so much <laughs> appreciate you for telling me that. But if your soul is fed by other people kind of, and that social interaction, this has been more than a notion for you. The idea that you can't go out and see your friends. And I can't imagine someone who lives alone through all of this and how, you know, you're healthy, able-bodied, but you're stuck in your house. What does that look like? And so it likely looks like you're a certain degree of depression, which, and stress from the idea that my whole system has broken down. I think the body on the whole takes change stress. Good change, bad change. I think that sometimes it doesn't like you to make broad strokes of change. It needs a moment to catch on is is what I observe. And I think that this kind of needing to stay home was such a blindsiding. The body kind of went into survival, right? Fight or flight to some degree. How do you manage that? So some people it's with food. Some people it's with lack of sleep. All the sleep in the world you could have through COVID. And some people aren't able to get any because, you know, your money's not where it was. Your job isn't secure. Your life as we know it is likely to change from here out, whether it's because COVID's here or because we have a post-traumatic stress behind it. You know, are we gonna wear a mask even when there's no signs of COVID? We might because we're just so freaked out by what's happened. So With that, understanding that it's normal, like you have to kind of give yourself a pass and say, okay, this is normal to feel uncertain and unsteady in a time that is unprecedented and to just kind of honor that journey and then just work against it. And what does that look like? I think that for someone who's extroverted, it means making the extra moment to create social moments that are distance. I love the idea of these kind of lawn parties where in the middle of the party is like hand sanitizer and drinks, (laughs) bags that are individually wrapped, and then you're six feet apart in a circle and you can still have a conversation, right? That allows you to be together and apart. This is what we're here for to some degree is to learn and, and live cohesively.
1: Oh,
0: that's really beautifully said.
1: Mm, and then what about for the younger people, for teenagers who are social animals and some of them aren't adhering, but for the ones that are, there must be some issues there.
2: You know, I, I worry for them. I have a 13 year old at home myself. And so he, I feel it for him because he's, you know, school he has a new appreciation for school. (laughs) I don't think he would have, someone said, you're going to be out of school for three months. I think he would have been celebrating until it happened. And so now that we're stuck at home with just like his parents and uh, it's so boring, (laughs) I I feel it for him. So his cousins, we try and make sure he's with his cousins and trying to make exceptions. I think from reading, it looks like we're going to all have to create our own little pods right? So mm-hmm. you find people that you know have been kind of quarantined too and don't have any symptoms and say, okay, we're going to make exceptions for each other and kind of be in each other's space. And that allows you to kind of live to be the way you're used to. But see him kind of moping some days like, when is school? Do you think we'll go back to school? What about basketball? You know, all these things that are part of kind of rites of passage that they haven't had. And I don't know if the studies are looking like, Zoom classrooms didn't do it, right? It didn't meet many criteria
1: you hear stories about the kids who have figured out how to manipulate Zoom and kind of they're there, but they're not, you know, kind of thing.
0: So it's not working really. Right. Right. So, you know, Tracy, this is just so helpful. And again, a lot of the people that we're working with are always saying, how do we boost our immune system? What can we do? So I think this conversation, we need to just keep having, uh, letting people know there's something in their control in terms of letting me know that I can get stronger during this period. So thank you for that discussion. And think now, we'd really like to pivot to what we talked about earlier, and that is about this racial equality and the systemic racism that's in our country. Tracy, as a Black woman, we thought it would be great to give you this floor right now to share with our listeners, many of them who know you, who we probably have never had this conversation before and just thought we would do it today. And thank you for agreeing to do this. I guess we'll start at the beginning. So tell us where you grew up in D.C. and about your mom and dad and just sort of your life story and your kids and everything.
2: You know, at the time I grew up in D.C., it was considered Chocolate City, right? I don't know if you guys were around during that era. I grew up in a neighborhood that was pretty well off, I'd say. It was 92% Black, 8% Jewish. And it was called at the time the Gold Coast of Washington. I feel privileged to be honest, with my upbringing. Private school, the whole thing. Very grateful for that experience and never really thought about... I went to public elementary school and everyone looked like me. It wasn't anything. And then when I went to private junior high school and then, oh, people... It's about half and half is what it was. And people don't look like me, but there's plenty of me around. It didn't... Again, I didn't really remember thinking about it until I got to high school. And when I got to high school, we had a class of 100 girls And there were 12 of us in our class. And everyone who saw us was like, you guys are the most Black people we have ever seen. (laughs) So at my high school, we would have, therefore, race conversations. It was a teenage-level conversation. It was, you know, along the lines of, well, what do you eat in your house for dinner? And how come you don't use the same seasonings? And why do you like those boys? And why do you hang out with these boys at this school? And we hang out with these boys at this school. And we realized that socially we had differences. So white girls in the class like to drink, honestly, and we like to dance. <laughs> so we had cultural variations and that led us to hang out with different boys' schools. And I think it was a innocence at that time and we I don't think any of us really lost any sleep about it or thought very hard about it. Just it was what it was and we honored that for what it was. From there I ended up at Howard which is the black school in DC again. And that's a totally different experience altogether because it's Blacks from all over the country and enjoyed that completely, moved along, got married, all of those things. And I have a stepdaughter who's 23 and then uh, two boys. My oldest boy is on the autism spectrum. And then my youngest is 13, I guess it'll be 14 soon. So having boys, right, that throws another monkey wrench into the race journey because you do end up having to say I haven't gotten to the age of where my youngest who's not on the spectrum is driving but yet we still talk about what do you do when you get pulled over when he loves hoodies and it's just like you cannot wear that hoodie up I'm sorry you just you just cannot I cannot have someone mistake you for or judge you for having just wearing that hood up at all and certainly a toy gun on you can play but you can't play in some place where someone else will spot that and feel threatened at all. And it's just the realization that Black males are dealing with a stereotype that they're dangerous, right? That they are inherently something to be afraid of. And you have to combat that. You know, it'd be nice if you could have a conversation, but really it's life or death. There's no time for that. You just have to be prepared and prepare them And it doesn't make sense. You can't really explain to a child why they can't wear their hoodie. It doesn't make sense that the idea at an age in which you feel like you're going to live forever, the idea that you could be in danger for something so simple doesn't really settle in. And then for my 16, now 16-year-old autistic son, I, like many mothers with children on the spectrum, I, one of his former teachers, had a son who was full grown, he's on the spectrum, had a job cooking for two hours a day downtown. And she feared for him every day to come on the bus because he's huge. And people would assume that he's dangerous. She's like, what if someone, and he wouldn't even be able to get the conversation out to say, I don't have a clue what you're talking about or my social skills aren't there. How do you describe that when someone assumes you are threatening and you honestly can't even get the words out? Virginia had a case of an autistic child sitting outside with a hoodie on in front of the library, got arrested and was in jail for three months, at least, last I checked in, because number one, he couldn't communicate why he was there. And then number two, the poverty from the family, they couldn't afford to get him out. It's frightening is the word, the word I'd use, because that's like a double edge. The 16-year-old, I, I will say with all full appreciation for Montgomery County Police, he's They have returned him home to me twice. He escaped the house while the babysitter went away to smoke and went swimming in someone's pool. He was found. They helped us tremendously. He went out the door one winter at 3 a.m. to go on the swing set. They bought him home. And I'm so grateful. So it's not to say there are not great police out there. That being said, you know, he's 16 years old walking down the street with his what we call tech, like someone who works with him. And the police pulls over to say he made a funny face at me. You know, why? <laughs> so what if he made a face? He, you know, he's a, a child and the person's like, he probably makes a funny face of me every day. So, you know, what do you want me to do about it? And, and then, then I, I don't know what the police person said, but it's the idea that he somehow is threatening, right? The idea that just his existence is threatening.
0: And as a mother, obviously, as you said, you're scared. There's something that you have to experience and feel that white people don't feel.
2: Right. No, it it's truly is a, a based on like uh, long-term stereotypes. And, and that's hard to
1: combat. Yeah. Yeah. How about as a professional, what kind of racism have you encountered? To
2: be honest, I'm already kind of outside the realm of mainstream. And that keeps me in my own little bubble. I did have one time when I came back from the (laughs) beach. I came back from the beach with a suntan. Someone I worked for said, Oh, you might have to move back to the back of the bus now. (laughs) Oh. You know, I knew that it didn't come from a place of, it's almost like his social ineptitude, right? He thought he was funny. I know from in his heart, he didn't mean anything by it. He's my boss. I didn't check him on it either. Nor did I lose any sleepover, though. To me, it didn't matter. But if that's it, that's not so bad, right? That's not life-defining moments like you're seeing now on the news.
0: This next question that we had down is the difference between non-racist versus anti-racist. From your perspective, how do you explain that? And what are your thoughts around that?
2: Well, thankfully, it's part of what this new generation is bringing to the table, right? So I think before now, it was everyone proclaiming they're not racist. But now they're kind of like, show me that you're not racist. They're requiring it. And I think it more so has to do with action. So a non-racist would be someone who says, you know, I have Black friends. I don't, I don't discriminate. I don't have problems or issues with Black people, but yet turn a blind eye to all the ills of society. And now I think the idea of kind of more being anti-racist, that suggests that you're going out and your actions are speaking louder than your words. And I think it's, it's this generation that has kind of made a call to action. People are having to answer the call. And it's a call to conscience, right? So if you truly believe it, stand up. And if you, you know, have those conversations with people and the number of times when someone would say something that's off color, you know, Forget the fun, but that you would sit by and not say anything, and now that day is ended. That day is you're expected to say, you know, that's not appropriate. It ends here.
0: Mm-hmm. You had said when we were talking before that you saw that the Black House is on fire, but what you see is all people of color coming to burn it down so that something great can come up?
2: What I think is going on is like a great time of like light coming to the darkness, right? So this is clearly like the end of an era, I think, and they're ushering in through just a movement of this can no longer stand. And when you see it across the globe, right, you see young people in New Zealand doing their traditional dance for Black Lives Matter or in Paris and London and all these things. There's never been a moment like that. When you see people of all races protesting for Black Lives Matter. I was a baby when the last set of protests March on Washington. I think my mother was pregnant with me during that. But everyone I talked to from that era says there weren't that many white people that protested with them. And so now for them, the shock is to see how people have come together to protest and to say to the world that this isn't acceptable that is certainly a great moment in time. And the fact that where it counts, the money, right? So corporations are standing up or being pinpointed for not standing up. That is definitely a line in the sand and that it's letting the world know you cannot cross it. We do not accept this or tolerate this in our corporate culture.
0: Yeah. And again, as you say, with social media, It's something that has to be taken seriously because people will see it instantaneously.
2: To me, what social media has done, George Floyd is the thing that makes him different is the fact that we caught it on video and it's an up-close and personal video. It's not a grainy security video that's in slow motion. It's literally you watch it happening almost live. You feel it right then and there. And then you see the police brutality that's been on film since then, since we've had our complete attention on this, it's been like amazing, the film that we're getting. I think that that is the saving grace for ending this, is that, well, you would hope that it's the saving grace that for ending this. To me, the police that have continued to do police brutality, knowing that you are on film and the world is watching, suggests that they don't care, right? You would think you would at least pretend you care for two weeks. Before you start going out and brutalizing. But somehow that didn't make the cut, which is odd to me. But for the most part, I think most people with a high or reasonable intelligence would tone it down if you know you're being filmed at every take. You're being
0: filmed. Yeah. Does your mom, what is she saying? So she's remembering what it was like before and she's seeing that it is different this time. Is she angry or is she, how is she? Or how is that generation?
2: Okay, so my mother's been yelling at the TV screen (laughs) since 2016. Like literally, uh, so many, uh, I know so many people's parents, my mother's same age, who have the news on all day and they're yelling right. at the screen, selling how, whatever, name calling and all kinds of things. So that has <laughs> that has been my background existence since she lives with me <laughs> since then. But she's been impressed. I mean, I think we're all impressed. Even, you know, I'm impressed with the, this generation. I think that they are doing an amazing job and just the way they persist and they, the way they go, they keep moving forward and you see, you know, doing it peacefully, really so much credit, despite at times being brutalized.
0: It is interesting to hear organizations, schools, universities, actually encouraging the students to protest in a peaceful manner. And I wonder if that wasn't the case before, if it was always like shunned and the protest was always just black people, but now it's like, get out and protest.
2: And I think it's a time for Atonement, literally. So many organizations, like NASCAR. I would have never thought about NASCAR. If NASCAR had never said anything about the Confederate flag, it would have never come to my mind, right? And yet, I honor the fact that they said, we're not going to do that. On our end, we need to say, okay, we're going to thank you for at least trying to change because that's how peace is made. It kind of is these concessions to say, okay, you, you had the racist flag forever, which I didn't notice before, but I assume that's true. And now you don't. And I honor that change. Maybe I'll take my children to go see NASCAR now.
1: Right. Well, and Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's and all those things. I mean, right. changes in the air and that's right. good. Tracy, what advice would you give to white people who want to learn and be better?
2: that again, this generation I would say when we were growing up it was considered our job to kind of educate whites on blacks mm-hmm. and now they're saying, okay, the whites need to kind of go within themselves and figure out for themselves, have those conversations amongst themselves and work on it? How do we, as a group in our conversations, not allow someone to say something that's inappropriate or how do I work on my not having the stereotypes. I personally think one of the greatest shows I've seen that kind of shows the systemic, cause you need to see the history of it and the systemic racism is 13th, a documentary on Netflix. And I think that's phenomenal and it shows how we go from like slavery to jail effectively and the trail that's taken. How do you get to first base when you're shackled by the laws almost and poverty? So I think those things and having conversations and being honest with, oh, I, this is the way I thought and I was wrong and moving on. But it, I do think that the movement you hear is kind of like getting whites to work within their own community, uh, which is different, new,
0: brand new. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden it might've been looked at as not their problem and right. now it's all of our problems right. and yeah. And what are we doing to change it? Right. Really incredible, thought-provoking discussions that I guess more and more people are having. Do many of your patients talk to you about this? I mean, is it like a day-to-day discussion? Does Paul at dinner, are you guys always talking about it? I haven't had very many patients bring it up. Some people more
2: so the stress of it comes up. Paul, my, who's my husband, yesterday texted me. He goes, this is really bothering me. He's like, I'm about to go into surgery and I'm, I'm really upset about this police brutality. The hard part is to stay stable, right? To keep your head in the game without allowing your emotions to take over. Right. And that's the hard part.
0: Yeah, I would think, you know, as, as you said, like that is just too close. And right. yeah, how do I stay focused and live my life right. aware with all of this? Yeah. Right.
2: I think that, you know, we were all hopeful when Obama was elected that, okay, wow, we've really achieved something that was phenomenal. But what it did was also take the Band-Aid off a of wound because those people who were horrified at that notion that there was a black president became emboldened. And now we follow up with a president who we, I don't know about you, but I was like, certainly at some point, at least he's going to pretend and say something unifying, right? (laughs) And not even for one second did he say anything unifying. I mean, at least fake it and say something to bring the country together. But it really, it never happened. But at the same time, you have to think that God is still on the throne and that is with a divine purpose, right? That Here we are, the unemployment rate's high, which means we can all go out and protest if we want to. So even if you're telecommuting, you can go protest if you want to, or teleworking, I should say. It couldn't be any more divine. Like, I don't know that if any other president, we would have had this kind of pushback.
1: Right. And maybe if we don't get the leadership from the top, that's propelled the younger people to do it themselves.
2: Right. I think that has helped it along. Right. I think it's almost perfect in a way to get it so that people feel the need to push as opposed to be complacent because it's easy to sit back Mm -hmm. and think, oh, guess what? He just said he's going to work on these things and take care of it. So therefore, I don't have to do anything. But when you didn't hear anything, you realize the fight has to come from you.
0: Wow. It is really interesting, Tracy, as you bring up, like that is a generation that's kind of stepping up. They're not going to forget it. You know, like this is something we are going to make a change. It's going to be real this time.
2: I mean, how awesome to be young during this time, right? Like you'll be able to tell your children, there's no way a history book could ever capture it. And you'll be able to say, I remember when this happened, look at this video, you know, that otherwise, how how do you teach this later? It's just not possible.
0: No. It's really a a unique time. Like you said, it's crazy. It's just so crazy. And exciting for that generation and all
1: of us to be a part of history that'll be change, real change. It
0: has to be.
2: Yeah, it feels like it has to be kind of the beginning of something new.
0: And you know, and again, this idea of our generation owes a huge apology. And as you said, we didn't even know it. You know what I mean? Like that's the distinction between non-racist and anti-racist. I mean, that was, we didn't even know it. And it wasn't intentional, right? It wasn't. It's just the nature of how we've been moving along, moving forward. And now that day
2: is called the question, right? At the least we're asking for more from one another.
0: Yeah. And I really love how you describe it, that it's different. It's people coming together of all colors to change. Right. Which is just so heartwarming, really. Right. It's true.
2: And motivating.
0: And motivating. Yeah. And not
2: only the police brutality that we've seen has not been all black people, right? Two old men I've seen get pushed down. I've seen, you know, whites getting beaten with those sticks. I mean, so it's not in this point, it's equal opportunity for police brutality. Right. Right. So unfortunately.
0: Right. Right, 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 right. Thank you, Tracy, for sharing all this with us. We just love you so much. And we're so proud that you're our chief medical officer. Um, so, thank you. This has been awesome. Thank you, Tracy. We're so grateful
1: to you all the time for just being there for us. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Sorry
2: that I had to get a little bit political. No. <laughs> hey,
0: you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha.
1: And I'm Doro.
0: Be well.